Today is Mother's Day, and there's also going to be a baptism there. But I was allocated a very specific passage, Matthew 13, for today, and I don't think I can turn it into a message that is specifically suitable for the occasion, but I hope that it will be enjoyable and relevant nonetheless. Matthew 13, just read the first few verses. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables. Matthew 13 is uh, a series of parables that relate to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, unfortunately, it's a passage that is often misinterpreted. And so because of that, I, I want to start this morning by giving some background pieces of biblical information uh, to kind of set the scene before we can actually get into the parables. Um, you know, when we, when we think of the kingdom in particular, uh, we, we have to bear in mind that, that God is king over heaven and earth. Uh, he is the creator. Uh, he is the rightful ruler of, of all of the universe. Um, and yet, for his own wise purposes, God has chosen to rule the earth through someone that he appoints to represent him and, and to bring about his will in the created world. And just this concept is, I think, vital. God is king, but he uses a person as his representative, as his king on earth. Uh, we all know that the first appointed representative was Adam. And unfortunately, that ended in failure because though Adam was giving, given dominion over the earth, and he was to be the caretaker of, of the earth, he failed because he himself was not obedient to the Lord and, and he didn't submit uh, to the will and the command of God. Uh, and that, that act of failure on, on Adam's part, that sin, uh, plunged the world, uh, not just mankind, but the world into a spiral of, of ruin and corruption. And it's been in that state ever since. However, and this is important, God did not lose his kingdom. God is still the king of all the universe. And he will continue to rule, and he has a plan for unfolding his kingdom, even though it seems to us at times as if that kingdom maybe is not very evident in this world, uh, that the presence of God is maybe not uh, seen by our human eyes tangibly uh, as much or as often perhaps as we would think it should be. Yet we have to know that behind the scenes, God is working out his kingdom program. And indeed, God's pattern of ruling the earth through an appointed man has not been broken either. And we can look back in the scriptures and we can see uh, that, that the Lord worked through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through the period of the judges, uh, through the kings of Israel, through, through King David particularly, and through the prophets. And ultimately, uh, God's kingdom, God's rule will be through the Messiah. So, you know, when, as we think about that, it's vital to remember that uh, God's kingdom on earth 
includes various phases. And this is a key truth as we come to, to think about Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of God on earth includes various phases, or if you like, dispensations. Uh, one of the keys in, in this whole program is the kingdom of Israel. Um, the kingdom of Israel was led by, obviously, the king of Israel. But particularly, that kingdom is, is kind of represented supremely in David, David the king. Uh, David was God's chosen king. He was the man after God's own heart. And King David is presented to us as a type, a symbol, if you like, of the, the Messiah. And in fact, the Messiah is one of David's descendants. Now, when we go through the Old Testament, we notice that again and again, it is prophesied that Messiah will bring in a glorious reign, an extended reign, and a physical reign on earth. And in that reign, the nation of Israel will have a very, very prominent position. So again, this is one of these little building blocks that is so key to understanding the, the, the kingdom program. What is the kingdom? When will it come? How will it come? Uh, who will the kingdom involve? Well, ultimately, uh, the Lord will reign and rule through Messiah. Now, what the uh, gospel of Matthew specifically does is unfold to us that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is God's appointed man. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And because the king was present, the kingdom was present. The kingdom came when the Lord Jesus came into this world. The Lord Jesus is God incarnate. He is the servant of Yahweh. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the son of God. He is God in the flesh, the word made flesh. Sadly, the, the New Testament records for us that this king, Jesus, the Messiah, was rejected. And his kingdom was refused by the nation of Israel. He was their king, but they refused it. Luke 19, verse 14, they cry out, we will not have this man to rule over us. We read in John 19 and verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to the, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel, shall I crucify your king? And then sadly, they say, we have no king but Caesar. So they reject the king that God had sent, God's appointed man. You know, at the end of this chapter in Matthew 13, we read that even uh, members of Jesus' extended family were offended at him, that they did not believe in him. They did not receive him as Messiah or as king. So the king was rejected. His kingdom was rejected. But the program of God was not forfeited or derailed in any way. It wasn't the end of God's kingdom program. It had not come off the tracks. Rather, an explanation is given back to us back in the Old Testament even. Messiah must first be rejected and suffer before ruling. The Old Testament through the, the, the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah very, very clearly outlined that for us. Uh, the Messiah was coming 
And one of the things that would be achieved in his rejection and suffering is that he would provide forgiveness of sins. Uh, before he would come to judge, before he would come to rule and reign, he would lower himself, he would condescend, he would take the form of a servant. Uh, he would willingly allow himself to be humiliated, rejected, suffer, and go to the cross. And on that cross, he would bear the sins of the world. As a result of his rejection, as a result of, of his suffering, as a result of him giving himself at his first coming, he did not set up his kingdom at his first coming, uh, but rather we, we, we discover that he returned to heaven. Uh, he left this earthly scene. As a result of the fact that he was rejected, that he left the scene, though the nation of Israel was, was, was punished and, and had to bear the consequences of a prolonged judgment. God is faithful to his promises and did not abandon his plans for his earthly people. And, and so we're ushered into then this, this period that, that Matthew calls the mysteries of the kingdom. Matthew speaks a lot about the future of, of the kingdom program. Uh, the king was rejected, the kingdom was refused, but the kingdom will come. And, and he instructs his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come. It's a future coming of that king. What, what is this? How does this all work? And I think in Matthew 13, we, we have a key to, to interpretation for the book of, of Matthew and our understanding of the idea of the kingdom. Between the two comings of Messiah, between his first coming and his second coming. The kingdom is in this mystery phase. It's in an interim phase. Uh, as, as Matthew talks about the mysteries of the kingdom, the idea here, something that was not previously revealed, something that was not previously known. Even from reading the Old Testament, you could not have, have foreseen this, this period of mystery. Uh, it's, it's a new revelation that comes through the teaching of the Lord Jesus, and in particular, through the parables of the Lord Jesus. The kingdom has taken a different form right now. It will come in its, in its fulfillment. Uh, God's covenant to King David will be completely fulfilled at a future time, but that will only be at the second coming of the Lord Jesus, when he returns to establish his rule. You know, it really is uh, this, this interim period, this, this mystery period uh, that he's talked about and explained and unfolded to us here in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, you know, it's significant when you look at, at the unfolding of, of Matthew, 12, uh, Matthew 1 through 12, uh, Jesus doesn't speak about the mysteries of the kingdom. But by the time you come to the end of chapter 12, the rejection of Messiah, rejection of King Jesus by the nation, particularly the, the, the national leaders, the religious leaders, uh, it culminates towards the end of Matthew 12. And they begin to, to say that the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, all that he represented was not from God, but from Satan, that his power was actually a satanic power. So it was clear that the battle lines were drawn and that the nation was going to completely push away uh, the Messiah, the Savior who had come. 
So Matthew 13 begins to record that a huge group of people followed Jesus. Uh, he moves out of the house that, that he was in, and he goes and he sits by the sea. And uh, it says he began to teach them in parables. Uh, as you read through Matthew's gospel, this is the first time that uh, Jesus is recorded as using parables. The word parable actually is a combination word, comes from two Greek words, para and balo, and it literally means to throw alongside. Uh, most often a parable takes something that is a known truth uh, to highlight an unknown truth. It, it throws them alongside each other, often using a short story uh, to emphasize this, this greater uh, truth that is being revealed. Uh, parables often take large abstract ideas and, and relate them to common experiences and bring them down, as it were, to, to an earthly level. A parable is actually a figure of speech. It's, it's called a simile. That's why often the words like or as uh, are, are associated with the parable. The parable usually just makes a single comparison between two things, and we're not meant to press every little detail of a parable as if every little detail uh, is, is of major significance. So as we read through, especially Matthew 13, and we, we read the kingdom of heaven is like, or uh, to what will you compare the kingdom of heaven? It is as uh, we look for a major point of comparison uh, in each of these parables. Now, it sounds easy, but sometimes within parables, there's further uh, figurative techniques, figurative, figurative language. So it can make it a bit more challenging to, to interpret. Uh, so context is very, very important. As you read through Matthew 13, uh, it's a series of parables. Um, verse one introduces the parable. Sorry, verse three introduces the parable of the sower. Uh, we, we read about the parable of the weeds, uh, the parable of the mustard seed, uh, the parable of the leaven. Uh, verse forty-four introduces the the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. Uh, then we read about the pearl of great price and the parable of the dragnet. And uh, towards the end of the chapter, verse fifty-one introduces the the parable of the householder. Now, it's interesting because uh, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is using parables. The disciples notice a, a change in the teaching method that Jesus is using. And so they come and they ask him, say, why do you, why do you speak in parables? Uh, why are you doing this? This is, this is different from the way that you've been uh, speaking before. Each one of these parables that Jesus is using uh, has some elements that the disciples grasp and some that they don't grasp. Uh, and, and as he goes through each one of these kind of illustrations, they're asking, why don't you just teach plainly? Why don't you just explain this? Um, and, and he takes the disciples aside and explains some of them to the disciples, but he doesn't explain it to the large uh, crowd, the crowd at large. So he says, why? Why are you teaching in parables? Jesus basically says two things. Parables reveal and parables also conceal. Parables are used to reveal truth. To, to the disciples themselves. <clears throat> Jesus says, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries or the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the, the disciples were incredibly blessed and privileged to be able to, to hear and see what many prophets in the Old Testament longed to, to understand. Um, 
So he reveals truth to his disciples. And when they don't understand, he does explain to them. But the second reason that he uses parables, Jesus ex explains to us here in Matthew 13, uh, is to conceal, to conceal truth from those who reject him. And it's intentional. Um, in fact, those to whom some light, as it were, had been given, and then who refuse and reject, even the little bit of light that they had, will become confusing to them. So it's clear again what's happening. The nation of Israel, and especially the religious leaders, are rejecting Jesus as Messiah. You'll notice, of course, that Jesus' disciples heard the same truth as everyone else. But there's different responses to that same truth. Somebody commented, the same sunlight that melts ice hardens clay. Right? And so the disciples saw and believed, but many saw and, and rejected. And so Jesus used parables to veil the truth from those who reject. Um, and, and in fact, you know, the light that they had received, they rejected, and, and they hardened themselves. They hardened themselves. Uh, in, in one sense, it's a mercy that the Lord withholds further light from them because the more light they have, the more culpable they are and, and the more it will increase their, their condemnation. So as an act of mercy, he said, you don't want the light, I'm going I'm to withhold it now. So that in a sense, you don't know too much more. But it was very definitely this concealing of the truth was also an act of judgment. Uh, they chose in darkness and now they're going to be kept in that darkness, they wanted darkness and they're going to remain there. Uh, their unbelief causes further spiritual blindness. Read in verse 15 of Matthew 13, the hearts of this people have grown dull, they become dull. They weren't dull, but they have become dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes, they have closed. They've intentionally uh, resistant uh, to the gospel. They're resistant to receiving uh, Jesus as their Messiah. And so as a result, they suffer the consequences. Somebody has stated that one who closes his mind to the truth begins a pattern, which makes it even more difficult to ever hear that truth. Again, when you turn your back on the light of Jesus, you increase the darkness of your own soul. And so there's a very serious warning given to us, here, even in the explanation of why Jesus was using parables. Uh, don't resist the call of the gospel. Don't resist the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus offers to us grace in himself. He offers to us forgiveness and salvation and, and his love. Don't push it away. Don't reject it. Because when you do, you are setting a pattern in motion within your own mind and your thoughts within your own heart. And you are hardening yourself uh, against the very truth of the one who loves you and, and offers himself to you uh, as, as savior and as Messiah. In Matthew's gospel, uh, we see a unique phrase, the kingdom of heaven. In fact, over 30 times in Matthew's gospel, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it only occurs in the gospel of Matthew. And it's a central theme all the way through. Um, that, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, doesn't occur anywhere else. It's not in the Gospels. It's not in the rest of the New Testament. So it's, it's, it's unique to, to Matthew. 
And then Matthew uh, especially uses this phrase, the mysteries of the kingdom of, of heaven. So this is, this is unique. It's a special way. Why is Matthew doing this? What is he trying to convey by this? And, and I believe that what he's explaining to us is that the kingdom arrived in Jesus, the king, but the king was pushed away, rejected, and therefore his kingdom was pushed away and rejected. And the king, after suffering and dying, was raised again, and then he returned to heaven. So the king is no longer present personally uh, on, on the earth. He is here by his Holy Spirit, and he is at work, but he is not physically, tangibly present in the world. He will come again, though, in the future, as he promised, and he will establish his kingdom on earth. But in the meantime, there's this, this gap, this gap between his first and second coming, this gap between him arriving, being rejected, and then coming back to establish his kingdom. That gap between the first and the second coming of Messiah is, is vital to understanding what Matthew is talking about here in chapter 13. It was in that gap that was unforeseen, uh, as it were, in, in the Old Testament prophecies. The prophets didn't understand this. They kind of telescoped together the first and second coming of Messiah. They spoke of Messiah coming and setting up his kingdom, and it was glorious, and he was victorious. And they didn't perceive that in between those two mountain peaks, as it were, of the first and second coming, there was this valley, this gap, this interim phase of the kingdom. And so between the first and second coming of Messiah, Messiah was to die and be raised and returned to heaven. And that as he said to, to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, it will be in the future. Uh, this world will be his kingdom. But right now, this phase, this mystery phase, his kingdom is not of this world right now. He rules from heaven. In this period of time, the kingdom includes both false and true believers, some who are genuine, some who profess to be believers, but who are not. And we see this in the very first parable, the parable of the sower, uh, various levels of reception uh, to the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something else that, that is very, very key in this gap is, is this mystery of the church, the body of Christ. And, and the book of Ephesians speaks a lot about that. Um, this, this new entity uh, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, uh, all who will receive Jesus as their Savior, this, this body of Christ, uh, this that will be the bride of Christ. Uh, this is another mystery that is revealed during this, this gap period. Of course, after the gap, the rest of the story will happen. Uh, later on, the postponed kingdom will come and the Messiah will establish his earthly kingdom. So if we look at the parables of Matthew 13, bearing all of this in mind, mind we, we, we then understand that the parables of Matthew 13 reveal what the kingdom is like between that first and second coming of Messiah, between his rejection and his reception. Uh, it is prophesied that at his second coming, uh, the whole world will, will, will look on him whom they have pierced, and that his 
particularly the nation of Israel, will turn in a great revival uh, to embrace the, the Messiah that they originally rejected at his first coming. So the parables of Matthew 13 though, reveal what it's like in the absence of the king while he is in heaven. Uh, what, is, what is this kingdom that is taking place on the earth right now? So the, 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 the parable of the sower, and we can read about it here in Matthew 13, uh, verses 1 through 9, but then we can also see the explanation of it in verses 18 through 23. And we don't have time this morning to, to actually read through it. And I encourage you to take some time this afternoon and read through this, this chapter. But we have the, the statement of it by Jesus. Uh, the disciples don't grasp it. The crowds don't grasp it. And so the disciples come later and they say, what is this? What does this mean? And so in verses 18 through 23, uh, he explains it to them. And he explains that this is a parable of the kingdom parable of the kingdom. As we come to, to look at it, we're aware that the interpretation is understanding what the original author meant to convey to the original audience. So what did Jesus mean to convey to the disciples and to the nation of Israel? Does that mean that it has nothing at all to do with us? No, because we're in this period of the gap. There is some application to us. And the application as we look at this Keep the original context, but we can ask, what does it mean to me? And, of course, one of the things that we see taking place here is four responses to, to the message of the kingdom uh, that, that, that we see unfolding in this, this uh, particular parable. So the soil in this parable of the sower, the soil is human hearts. Uh, the seed that, it, that is sown is the message the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, and, and the soil of the human heart yields at least four different responses to the message. <clears throat> the difference in these results was not in the seed. The seed is good. The seed is the same. But there are different responses, all depending on where that seed fell. I don't think the point of the parable is that exactly 20, you know, only 25% of those who heard the message believed. It's just not an analytical thing in that way, and we'd never press the, the details of the parable too, too far. But clearly, the point of the parable is this. The majority did not respond genuinely. There was a number of false professions that, that happened. Now, in this strict con context, of Matthew's gospel, the parable explains why the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and most of Israel were rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Remember the context of the book. Matthew 12 is a turning point, growing opposition uh, to Jesus. Uh, you're not of God, you're of Satan. And so now Jesus uses these, this, this parable to, to explain and help his disciples even understand why this pushback, why, why this rejection. And he says, well, it's, there's nothing wrong with the, the truth. There's nothing wrong with the Messiah. There's nothing wrong with the message. The problem is the way people are receiving the message and what they are doing with the message. The majority did not respond genuinely. John the Baptist had come on the scene and he had warned people, I'm a forerunner and the Messiah is coming. So get ready for the kingdom. Get ready for the king. And they had to repent. 
and they had to acknowledge their sin. They had to submit to God. But most of the people didn't. The leaders didn't. They were proud. They were arrogant. They were self-sufficient. And they did not make themselves prepared soil for the message that Jesus brought. Uh, they, they had repeated calls from John the Baptist and from Jesus himself. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sorry, we don't want that message. We're not prepared to receive that message. And the more they saw of Jesus, the more they conspired to try and get rid of him. He was, he was upsetting the apple cart. Uh, he, he was spreading disinformation. <laughs> you know, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. So the first soil that we are shown here in, in this parable is the seed which fell on the road or the path, and immediately the birds came and devoured it. And we see that in Matthew 13, verse 4, and then the explanation in verse 19, Jesus said, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, does not understand it, quite literally doesn't grasp it, not only just understanding with the mind, but doesn't kind of lay hold of it and pull it into his heart. Uh, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So the seed is the message of the kingdom. Uh, the path is, is the, the hard soil where the seed falls. And the responsibility, of course, is laid on the one who hears the message and the decision it must be made to receive the message. However, these people uh, don't allow the message to take root. Um, these people allow Satan to come and snatch it away. They treat it very lightly, casually, cavalierly, and it's like, oh, well, whatever. Uh, they hear the message, though. And by application, we think of many people, even perhaps those who are gathered uh, there in the auditorium today here on Zoom, uh, perhaps this, this message is broadcast later, uh, people who will hear that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the, he is the Savior. He is the only one who can save us from our sins. He is the rightful king and heir of the universe. No, thank you. No, thank you. There's a responsibility laid upon anyone who will hear. What does it mean to me? I need to, to think carefully about what Jesus is saying. I need to open my heart and respond to the word of God, which comes to me and not allow Satan just to come and steal it away from me. The second soil is, is the seed that, that fell on stony or rocky places. And uh, in, in Matthew 13, 20 and 21, it says, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He says, oh, great. I love the sound of this message. But it says he has no root in himself. He endures only for a while. For It's very temporary. When tribulation or persecution comes, uh, arises because of the word, specifically because of the gospel, because of Jesus, uh, immediately he stumbles or he falls away. So the rocky soil represents those who seem to accept the truth, the gospel, but it's very superficial. There's no depth. As soon as difficulty comes their way, they wither and they fail. They, they just fade out. Uh, shallow earth uh, yields a shallow profession. It was quick to sprout, quick to fade. Uh, the profession doesn't matter. There's two things I mentioned, tribulation and persecution. Uh, tribulation, that word means to press or squeeze, um, to, to put under pressure. Um, it's, it's, the English word is from the, the Latin word tribulum, uh, which was a roller used 
to, to press wheat. So it's an idea of intense uh, squeezing and suffering. Uh, the second word is persecution, uh, opposition. This, this word particularly, uh, of course, relates to, to the idea of what you believe. Uh, but, but both of these are because of the word. And so what we have here is not a gradual loss uh, of interest, but a collapse under pressure. Uh, he suddenly stumbles um, because of the word. The, the third soil that we see here is the seed that falls among the thorns. Um, and it says, Jesus explains in verse 22, uh, one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it becomes fruitful. Uh, I, I guess we could say that thorns here uh, represent competing interests from the world. So a person is hearing the, the, the Bible, the word of God, hearing the message of Jesus, but, but also hearing the lure and attraction of, of the riches of the world, the pleasures of the world, the other philosophies and ideas uh, around about. And uh, all of those distractions choke out the truth, uh, choke out the message of Jesus. It, it has no room to, to actually flourish. Now we're warned in, in other places in the scripture, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown people in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So again, there's a, there's a warning here. There's an application to us here to not allow the word to be choked from within us, to, to throttle out, suffocate the word of God. Uh, there's illustrations, the rich young ruler, for example, um, he found it so difficult to follow the Lord Jesus because of the cares of the world and riches and so on. I think what we see in the first three soils is there's no true reception of the seed. Good seed, the word, but no actual spiritual change. It looks like they've received the seed, but there's something wrong. The soil is hard. The soil is thin. Uh, the soil is rocky. The th soil is thorny. So there's no genuine growth. The fourth kind of soil that is, is laid out for us is the good soil. It's good ground. It's prepared ground. It's ground that is willing to not just let the seed fall on it, but it, it pulls it in. It gives the, the, the right circumstances for that seed to, to not only sprout, but to flourish and to grow and to bear fruit 60-fold, 100-fold, 30-fold, etc. So I think what we can do as we, as we look at this is that there's some applications here, some lessons that we can take away. The parable of the sower says there's not going to be universal reception of the truth of the gospel. Most of those who hear the message of the kingdom will reject it, but some will receive the message. Some will believe in, in the truth. This is, this is the nature and, and character of this age in which we're living, this, this mystery form of the kingdom. The king is at work, but from a distance from heaven. There are those who are being saved. But it's, it's, it's few. It's, it's kind of the idea of the broad road and the narrow road. Uh, the broad road leading to destruction is wide, many who travel it. That narrow road leading to salvation is very, very few who travel that road. But we shouldn't be discouraged by that. We should expect that Jesus has warned us that that will take place. But they are genuine believers. 
from this parable, we see that genuine believers withstand the attempts of Satan to snatch away the word of God. Genuine believers endure tribulations and persecutions and are not overwhelmed, not destroyed by it. Genuine believers are not derailed by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. They go through all of those things, but they keep on keeping on. Uh, by the fruit, you will know them. I guess a question that we have to ask ourselves in closing is this, what is my response to the word of God? What kind of soil am I? It's thrilling to hear some young people who are being baptized today who want to declare to their friends and family and to the world, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to be receptive soil. I want the word of God to, to dwell in me, to produce fruit. I want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. I don't want me to be a mere professor. I don't want to be a fake professor of, of, of Christianity. I want to be the real deal. Each one of us has a, has a decision to make. What kind of soil am I? What kind of response am I giving to the word of God? And of course, in that last group, the good soil, you notice that there's different levels of response there too. And so there, there's a challenge there in terms of growing. Even if you, you have been saved and you have come to the Lord, are you progressing? Are you growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Are you going from being a little bit fruitful to more fruitful and more and more? walking with the Lord and letting an abundance uh, of, of his word overflow through our lives and glorify him in every aspect. What kind of soil am I? What kind of soil are you? And I, I trust and pray that this message will, will, will resonate with us and that the Holy Spirit will cause it to, to linger with us and, and that we'll think about that. What kind of soil am I? God bless you.